0: Hello and welcome to Medieval Pod, a podcast about how the medieval world influences the politics, ideas, and lives of modern people. My name is Emily Price, and I'm a doctoral candidate researching medieval emotion and scientific texts at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York City. In this podcast series, I talk to one medievalist each week whose work bridges the medieval period and modern life. This show aims to highlight new and exciting research in the field of medieval studies and to provide a resource to those learning about particular aspects of the medieval period for the first time. To learn more about the show and to access these additional resources you can go to www.medievalpod.newmedialab.cuny.edu this week i spoke with dr alicia spencer hall honorary senior research fellow at the school of languages linguistics and film at queen mary university of london about her work on gender fluidity in medieval hagiography the importance of paying attention to lived experience in history and how non-normative experiences of time can give us new ways to survive and perhaps thrive in the academy. Obviously, um, one of the reasons that I was so excited to have you on um, is that you have done a lot of writing. You've done a lot of writing, generally speaking, um, but you've done a lot of writing, um, both of sort of 21st century uh, cultural criticism slash pop culture writing, and also a lot of uh, writing about hagiography, 13th century medieval, All of that stuff, Stuff. just broad strokes. Yeah, Yeah, all that stuff. (laughs) Um, And uh, you often bring them together in your work, which is really um, impressive and exciting. So I guess sort of my first broad strokes question for you is, why do you feel that it's so um, important or interesting to you to put medieval and 21st century um, ideas in conversation with each other?
1: Ooh, starting with a hard one, um, <laughs> I think that sort of almost like an embryonic like prequel answer is that's literally just how I see the world, like everything is connected to me, um, everything somehow relates to something else, so I've just never been like a historian in the sense of sort of teleology like oh and then we got better in progress and the medieval is very separate to us. Things I think that is glorious about the Middle Ages I mean, I began my undergrad going, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do modern. I'm not going to read anything before 2000. But then I had these amazing lectures about the the medieval, and it was about like the theory of being a human, you know, queerness, magic, identity, feminism, and these kind of fluid ways of being, which really spoke to me as sort of a person trying to be in the world myself and thinking about critical concepts. So in a way, again, it's I can't not put them together because that is just how I see everything. But then the more my research is developed, the more I have grown as a person, as kind of an oppressed, the more I see as a kind of it's a political act, much more. And I I have much more of an intention of politicized scholarship now than ever before, because I think that. On the one hand, we have people who dismiss uh, anything medieval as, you know, barbaric, violent, white, white supremacist, um, boring, not really related to who we are today, and that. I think it's just wrong and all for us, particularly an issue right now is the white supremacist Middle Ages. Ah, fun fact, no, it wasn't. There were people of color, there were gay people, there were queer people, there were disabled people. And so actually one, debunking the weaponizations of Middle Ages is really important to me, but also pointing out that like, it was cool. It was weird. There's so much fun stuff there, particularly when you look at things like saints who are like a zombies or see Christ everywhere. And it's all quite psychedelic. Mm-hmm. And though there's the idea of, we need to move on this notion of objectivity, this idea of the historian as a cis, white, able-bodied man. And there is an objective truth And so actually, I think you'll find all these people in popular culture think the medieval is boring. They are wrong because popular culture is wrong and bad and low quality. And that frankly just really pisses me off. (laughs) I think that we are informed by our embodiments, our subjectivities, our identity positions, and that makes us better as scholars and that makes our scholarship better. And so I am somebody who's deeply into culture. I always have been. I mean, my blog is called Medieval. She wrote. I love murder. She wrote. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a kid, all we did was we'll watch films and TV, and I find joy in that and pleasure. And so, for me, staking this claim that the medieval is more modern than we think, and vice versa, is a political act. Against gatekeeping in the academy against this idea of the kind of neutral objectivity which is a fallacy that oppresses marginalized identities and also i think frankly that in the academy to limits our insights
0: yeah that's i i really like the way that you put that i had a really um similar journey actually as an undergrad because i was like i'm going to be a modernist like virginia exactly. Woolf, all the way <laughs> and then i took a a really really amazing course on um Medieval manuscripts, and I was like, "Oh, hang right. on," <laughs> um, you I know.
1: I didn't know, like, yeah. I I, I yeah, was yeah. the person feeling like, oh god, I can do all, like reenactments and sort of really bad ye mm-hmm. oldy Englishy, mm-hmm. and then I was like, wait a minute, you know, talking about the Marie de France because I did French and German. So Marie de France of Beowulf is about werewolves yeah. who are people but are not people, about magic fairies who fix things, but they also don't fix. I mean in a way for me in a way in so much of it was quite soapy yeah so you know I'm like this is a bit like coronation street actually I mean this is you know
0: yeah <laughs>
1: family dramas and it goes yeah. on and on and and I and again like I said I just I find joy in it and yeah. I think that is again a very important thing in the sense that in the academy and it's again this idea of neutral intellectualism Is very abstracted from joy, from your embodied existence, and I think actually reclaiming that—that is a site of power—is just better for the academy, better for people, and just better for scholarship.
0: Yeah, I completely agree, (laughs) and more interesting. Yeah, Um,
1: just by far. I mean, this is the thing that really like it really makes me like cry inside a little bit but also gives me so much hope is that when I give papers on things because there's a certain point in my career I was like well I could just be sort of normal <laughs> or I could just say what I think and what I feel yeah. and what I think actually this connection does make sense and I do see it and if people get it great but if they don't at least there was me in the room and then people mm-hmm. come up to me after like papers or whatever and they say do you know what I've got this great idea about like Gossip Girl and this really random text that nobody's ever read out and I just I just have this you know I've written down some post-it notes but I'll never publish it and it's just this way that again sort of almost internalized gatekeeping as well that we mm-hmm. are as scholars we are people we are allowed to consume things that we enjoy or we can hate read you know but things that nourish us a way we do make those connections
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but there are so many forces kind of stopping that expression and so I see like kind of my role in a sense is just by being like it's possible what are you into let's talk about it it's cool
0: oh very cool (laughs) Um, I guess jumping off of that into maybe a more specific discussion of what um, what you tend to work on. Um, so a lot of your work focuses on um, hagiography. Um, yes. And so I was wondering if just to start off, you could give like a super brief explanation of what hagiography is to people who yes. might not understand what that is.
1: Hagiography
0: uh, Just means biographies of saints. So
1: saints lives. Um, so it's very, that's like its most basic form. The thing you need to think about with hagiography is it's the idea like the text written for a reason. So you have people like called hagiographers who are usually male and clerics writing a story of a saint's life for a specific purpose. So like in the most formalized version, it's therefore canonization. So you're basically trying to create a narrative out of like Joe blogs in the street which gets them to be Saint Joe blogs. So they have to <laughs> full, like you know be formalized into certain tropes. So you, you know, you're really pious as a child or if you get married you might be chaste or you have the whole genre of um, you know early Christian martyrs, for example. So mm-hmm. they're quite uh, repetitive from saint to saint. At the same time though, they often contain lots of really weird shit but it can't be normcore and a saint <laughs> it just doesn't work mm. you have to sh- you have to have miracles right you have to be exceptional there has to be a reason we're doing this whole thing and so you have things like um christian martyrs who will be alive for days in flames or they'll be able to talk to animals They'll see Christ everywhere, or if you know you're a holy woman, you'll have sex with Christ in your head, and that's completely good. And we're saying this is a miracle, so of course we're going to canonise you. <laughs> um, so it's about this creation of an identity for a specific purpose. Now, in terms of like medievalism, sort of like the scholarship of hagiography, I would say like hagiography got a pretty bad name and still does because it's viewed as sort of a bit low rent like Mm -hmm. oh it's just the same it's basically the same you just like fed in a different person but it's the same tropes over and over um Mm -hmm. that you know there's this real problem to deal with like but they're not history are they because they're not actual histories whether or not things happen as they are stated in the text we'll never know but like i'm pretty sure like christina morales did not in fact like die and like resurrect three times (laughs) <laughs> but it's about, it's, like, the vibe of it is what it's going for. Whereas, yeah, this is very, like, white, cis able-bodied male historian view is have no literary quality. There's no historical quality. They're boring. So they're not really worth studying at all. And I guess I, and along with, sort of like, feminist and queer scholars um, from, like, the 80s onwards who, like, re-influenced my work and sort of made my work possible said, wait a minute, she wait a minute so much there there Um, and started Mm. to look at things like in female saints lives how do women have agency do they have agency you know what about erotic a desire for god how does that work so you have the sort of in the past oh god 50 years ish this real attempt to take seriously Mm -hmm. and that's sort of where we are right now I'd say
0: that's really that's an interesting trajectory because I feel like from um the perspective of somebody who does like attic studies like myself yeah. there's a lot of um we can't know this thing for sure or this is clearly not mm-hmm. you know this description of somebody's uh, emotional state is clearly either exaggerated or like it's not within the realm of possibility or it's fantastical mm-hmm. so like why would we even consider this um as a historical document or you know in literary studies as an object of study cuz it's not um interesting enough or it's not conventional enough but um that that turn towards actually considering it seriously is really uh promising and
1: and again it's sort of being more comfortable with the messiness of like genre Mm and is as a genre there's a lot of um sort of internal talk about it might not be like true but it is authentic Mm so it's like the events that are saint like oh died and came back to life might not necessarily be historically true but they are authentic because the saint was in fact that pious that it could have been true
0: but it mm-hmm. wasn't. could have been
1: so this sort of like needle thread oh interesting oh
0: sorry i think you froze for just a second
1: um um yeah so they, this like this interplay between fact and fiction and how scholars have wrestled with it, but how in the text um, it's wrestled with. You know, you have, you have hagiographers coming out and being like, you won't believe it, but it's still, no, it is definitely true because God, you know, makes everything happen. So just go with it, everyone. Mm-hmm. And another important thing to sort of um, flag, I guess, is that you have the idea of like so, the, the old school hagiographies, which are Latin because of these are like religious texts, aim for canalization or for popular and local veneration. Um, and then you have, if you're really popular, you'll have your texts translated or versions of your life, or, or sometimes you a vernacular only life, as it mm-hmm. were. Um, and gender is extremely important because uh hagiographies are male. Like so if you are having women and often you know voicing women in these texts, it's but it's written by a man of very specific purposes in the context of a patriarchal institution that is the church. So Mm -hmm. any any sort of like basic reading in a way involved having to negotiate with all these like kind of big concepts and big theoretical paradigms, uh, which to me makes it, that's why it's so interesting.
0: Yeah, definitely. Do you have a favorite saint life?
1: Ooh, I mean, I feel like, I have to say Christina Mirabilis, because like Nick K wrote a song about her. Uh, <laughs> and the song is actually a really good like overview of her biography, which I was like, go Nick. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think because um, so Christina Mirabilis, again, is in this corpus that I worked on for my PhD called The Holy Women of the Age, And these are really important women because they are... Of uh, the religious and the profane, so they're not nuns, but they but they're not not nuns, and some of them in fact are nuns, but we now call them beguines. So again, it's this messiness of women who are really devoted to God, but maybe don't fit within traditional orders or traditional structures of being religious. And then you have uh, Christina, who is just a weirdo. I mean, she. <laughs> There's no, you know, the it's not your mother's medievalism. So the beginning of the text, it starts, she's dead. And then she starts like levitate out of a coffin. I mean, that, <laughs> right. Okay, that kind of sets the tone then, um, <laughs> you know. And she's just, in a way she reminds me of a figure like Tank Girl or something. It's kind of bigger, bolder than life, weirder that you can't help but root for, except you're rooting for her in the 13th century. And when she's dying a lot, but being resurrected, so her big shtick is she's astonishing. Is she comes back to life because Christ says, "Ah, I I can make you come back to life, but you're basically gonna have to go through purgatory on earth, and you will then like live through all the purgatorial suffering, but it will be good for everybody around you because you'll get like every soul will be saved." And she obviously goes, "Yes, yes, next mm-hmm. come back into a community," but then she's really weird. So she sort of like dangles on tree limbs. She uh, lies on the bottom of the river for like five days. She hangs herself for a week. She dies again. I mean, it is, it's just odd. Um, but there's so much there, there within text. It's not even just sort of simple odd.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: There, there's so many layers of actually um, why the text works as an orthodox document in the sense that. Everything that's happening to her that she's embodying is actually canonically appropriate. It is in line with doctrine, and so as to us, you're going, "What the hell?" Actually, the point is that yeah, you do that as a medieval person, I'm sure, because it's pretty alarming. But at the same time, wow, that is purgatory, though. Like that—that that is also real. And I just—I'm just really, I don't know, compelled by her. And on to first um, just her bad self. I mean, she just, you know, they lock her up for a while because they think she's a demon, but like then I think it's her breast exude oils and she eats that and she's fine, because of course she is, and <laughs> yeah. she tootles about. And at the end, you know, she dies again. But then that later there's a vision of somebody that we identify as Christina. So it's not identified as her in the text, but kind of makes sense that it is her. So I also love this idea of she's just she's just gonna haunt you whenever she wants. Whenever she's like, no, treat my shrine better, she'll come back. And this sort of like eternal spectral staying power kind of goals in a weird
0: way. Yeah, that's very cool. I think I remember the um, there's a scene with her in like a wheel, right? I think yeah. I remember that. That's the that's what I think of when I think of Christina. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, she's very she's very cool. Um, okay, well, um, something else that you've written quite a bit about with uh, reference to hagiography, and I think it's sort of just um, automatically kind of connected to it is mm-hmm. um, relics and and relics in a sort of. Uh, medieval context and also relics in a modern context um so i was wondering if you could also maybe discuss um what relics are and how they might have been <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a very big question um but again you
1: know. in a word they are cool um yeah. i think the a big step to get from from like a modern or modernist point of view is you think ah a relic they, they are inanimate right and or, but the point of relics is they do things they act in their world they have power mm-hmm. they can, like radiate power and so you have say a relic could be um, a bit of christ's body a saint's garment you have various forms of like ah but if i if that thing touched that thing that's definitely a relic now it's a certain order of relic,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: but it's kind of just like uh the transmission of divinity usually it's like uh you know uh, some kind of healing power basically like a blessing but very much particularly with, like uh, contact relics will be if you put this cloth on your face then you'll be able to see again etc mm-hmm. again what I'm interested in to do with relics is about this idea of that but it it is inanimate but it's also animate it, it's both at once in a really powerful way of, of that mix of passive and active Mm-hmm. so um for example you have things that like relics that, that basically get themselves stolen <clears throat> excuse me if they're not happy with where they are
0: <laughs> relics
1: that move um mm-hmm. the veronica icon uh, which turns itself upside down sometimes uh, you know, these are kind of I like almost like impish impish chaotic things they also have bit of their own personality in the sense that there's a there's a way they want to be treated and respected and there's a way they operate Mm -hmm. also relics are incredibly important in terms of just like transactional economics of faith like if you want to draw people to your cathedral like pilgrims for example which bring money and prestige you've got to have the best relics. like that's why you have you know however many thousands of christ foreskin because everyone wants christ foreskin because obviously Mm -hmm. you know that's got to be a powerful one so it's, it's also this idea of um, money, economics, prestige, both spiritual, social. Now, how do you, like, if, if to become a saint, right, you need a hagiography of some kind, you need somebody to write a story that says this person is clearly a saint, so, like mm-hmm. witnesses to you being saintly, but then like the end point of that is basically your death and becoming a relic. Mm-hmm. and that's a weird position to be in as a person if you think that like your job basically is to be exceptional to die and then to be like atomized and to have all your bits touched controlled consumed by people mm-hmm. and that's but that's great because that's your staying power in the world and for me i think like in my book i talk about um being like living relics so kind of to push it even further so that relics that are lively as I've just been trying to kind of sketch but the idea that particularly like women under patriarchy for example and the women in the corpus of saints that I primarily work on they have power mm-hmm. you know there is an there is agency but there is also oppression marginalization and infusivity and so I think I the metaphor I use is about like a, a statue that is posed in certain ways but will resist being posed in other ways it's this Again, it's the mixture, the messiness of how does one live uh, as a subject that is also always already an object. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is where sort of Relic's power in a modern sense comes from and why I see very much in terms of uh, patriarchal and white supremacist and colonialist regimes, um, which I hope is sketched sort of ever more by my followers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, sort of sort of framing of, of what a relic is because I think, I certainly tend to think of relics as like, oh, like there's that guy's hand in Hungary yeah. and you go and you see it and it's in, you know, I actually, I got to do this a while ago. It was really cool, but, um, you know, it's under like a little shroud and you can't touch it at all. Um, you can't even really look at it. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about, obviously relics not necessarily as like accessible to everybody, but as something that you would be touching or like ingesting even, I think you talk about that in one of your, um, one of your articles about somebody trying to eat, um, I I forget which saint that is, but somebody's bone.
1: (laughs) Mary Magdalene's bone. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: The hue is just super into it, and so then gnaws on the bone, which again is just this sort of monstrous, oh, but at the same time does make logical sense. (laughs) Again, this sort of relics economy, and in in the context of Catholic faith, which but it is the body and blood of Christ that you're eating that it, it's it is literally that and mm-hmm. so there's again it it sort of makes these moments of that are shocking or horrific in the sense of like zombie horror movies like in Christina Mirabilis to me <laughs> are pointedly have the power because they're in so clearly to doctrine that it's pretty hard to stomach in certain ways mm-hmm. so they sort of again they reveal they're like oh no yeah that you actually, what well, you have signed up for, and you do believe in, yeah. What does that mean? So it's kind of these <laughs> unsettling
0: moment. Like, oh god. Yeah. What's the extension of that? <laughs> do yeah, I want to know. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. Um. So I guess that's actually kind of a good um, inroad into something else that you work on, which is um your your current and also forthcoming work on, uh, trans and genderqueer saints um in their experiences so i know that you have a an edited collection right coming out on that um so that this is one of those things too that i i think um trans studies with medievalism from what i know about it has had the same sort of struggle as um you know other other queer theory and um even feminist theory in that a lot of people are like well that's not a thing in the middle ages or you can't quantify that um during that period Um, you know same thing with like disability studies too Um, so how i i this is another very big question (laughs) so interpret it in the way that you want but i guess i'm curious how you how when you're when you're researching this how you go Mm -hmm. about locating trans history in hagiography or how you approach that
1: well i'd say there are two sort of preliminary points to make and one that's most important is that there are people who have been doing this work for years that like should be credited. So like Gabrielle M.W. Bykovsky, when mm-hmm. literature things transform, she is on the vanguard of medieval trans studies. Um, my co-editor of this volume, Blake Gut, um, is Ellis Amity Lai. There's so many people um, actually that are working on this but have been sidelined or in very junior positions and so haven't had much kind of FaceTime as it were, um, and frankly medieval trans studies has only just begun to rise in terms of being like viewed as like a real thing
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: and I'm happy to see that it is and I'm very proud of this collection as as you know another moment forward in that. We put together uh, a usage guide as part of it which will be free on the internet so just google it um, to help Uh, scholars working in this field because it is such a rich area um, to use terminology appropriately, um, to be respectful, to understand um, sort of the the stakes in the game of language and how to deal with uh, historical subjects and also contemporary subjects. Mm -hmm. Now, my other point is that I think as a, if somebody, even a cursory read of a hagiography, will be able to see that obviously there are trans and gender queer saints. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean in, in a sense by that it's a bit like banal to me, to, mm-hmm. just to say that, because so much um, of religion is in the middle ages, imbricated with slipperiness of gender.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You think about um, jesus um who's very maternal you know literally nourished with his quote unquote breasts monks mm-hmm. um you have the notion that jesus was made purely of uh, mary's flesh and thus had a female body that's kind of right uh, yeah. you have seminal texts like the song of songs talking about basically queer desire between feminized monks and christ their beloved hmm And if you look at um i mean particularly holy women and again in these sort of uh, living saints as it were so these are people who um and who lived in like shortly before or around the point that their texts were written Mm -hmm. so again this is like the living saint idea there's a i mean they really like to have sex with christ i mean they have (laughs) some very like erotic visions but there's also to do with gender inversion that mm-hmm. sort of the way one becomes holy is to be exceptional in a certain way and sort of gender is a subsidiary category almost to holiness so there's this idea now about uh, are saints potentially like a third gender um, mm-hmm. or is holiness itself a kind of gender basically most sort of um simplistic generalization is that men who are becoming holy tend to become feminized and women becoming holy uh, become masculinized mm-hmm. in certain kind of key ways and again it's to do with this s- slipperiness but also throwing off mortal embodiment in mm-hmm. profound ways and living differently to those around you yet being fully 100 authentic mm-hmm. and so I mean the the Trans and Gender Queer Saints volume came out of. I organized a series of panels at the big uh, medieval conference in Leeds, I think in 2017. And the response was just so fantastic from scholars going, Yes, haha, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I also think it's really important that to talk about gender and transness and queerness in terms of saints because of transphobia and queerphobia categorizing. Ways of living and just existence as wrong, as morally deficient, uh, as the opposite of sanctity. Mm-hmm. And so part of the political work that we do uh, in the volume, and then Blake and I sketch in the introduction, is this idea of transness as sanctity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, particularly on religiously informed transphobia, which the Vatican itself promulgates, and yet if you go back to the theological sources they rely on, you go back to the Bible, it's wrong. It yeah. just, it doesn't link up. Yeah. So yeah. that's another sort of point of our work and a methodology we're staking through trans-hagiographical scholarship is mm-hmm. that go back to the sources. Seriously, just go, what does the text say? And let yourself be open to what it says and how you react to that. So there's a really beautiful um, chapter in the volume by um, Sophie Nexton, which talks about, again, it's finding yourself and let yourself touch and be touched by people in your texts, in your sources. And that is a profound moment of coming into one's own present and creating futures for not just transgender-based scholars, but for all of us, actually, about how we exist authentically. Mm-hmm. Um, So again, I think that in a way sort of the transphobia and the erasure of trans identities and the sort of pressure to become even more marginalized, particularly within history, because of being written out of history, Mm -hmm. has produced sort of in in the pushback, this glorious, again, joy. Again, the sense like uh, we talk about trans lives is not just about what feels wrong, it's it's about what feels right. Mm-hmm. and making space for trans euphoria, and you can do that in scholarship too, and in fact it is a moral, ethical, intellectual obligation to do
0: so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about, um, from what you've said about heterogethy as a genre, as being able to challenge those kinds of ideas about like, objectivity, and like, we can't actually know, you know, this person might have reported that they were feeling this way, but like, you know, we can't, that can't be um, analogous to transness, which is something that I've heard a lot in, um, in sort of brief discussions of this. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of hagiography is written by other people, right? So we're, yeah. we're not just getting, okay, this is my subjective experience, which is, would you know, would be enough, but it's also someone else saying like, this person, you know, changed genders or they thought of themselves as another mm-hmm. gender or they were feminized or they were masculinized, you know? Um, it's, it's really, really interesting that, that is a, um, a resource. Um, and like, it sounds like a, a very overlooked resource. Um.
1: It really is, or in ways that has um, been negated. Mm-hmm. So there's the idea that there was scholarship on um, trans-hagiography. I mean, I wouldn't hesitate even to call it that because of its implicitly transphobic vibe that on quote-unquote transvestite monks, for example, because there is there of monks um, who were assigned female at birth, who lived as monks, and then usually it's only at death, they were quote-unquote discovered mm. um, to have a different gender, and yeah. then how the text deals with that. Now again, the problem with that is that, yes, some medieval people, dress, great, but this sort of enforced labelling of it—they can't be authentic trans people. That's that's not allowed. Scholarship yeah. did not allow that. Yeah. That even that possibility, and it's also the the intensely detrimental connotations of transvestite, transvestism. Yeah. With psychoanalysis, language, sociology, and so again, part of the volume um deals with. Okay, so we have talked about queer transvestite marks, but actually we've not we've not done it well and mm-hmm. completely erased, but also done damage, frankly, to people by imposing these really limiting frameworks. Mm-hmm. A thing I'm really um, excited about though, is the openness of more senior scholars in revisiting past works. So I'm really proud to have everyone in our collection, um, including Martha G. Newman, who um, wrote a piece like 20 years ago on brother Joseph who's a German uh, monk uh, and she's coming back to brother Joseph and saying I was wrong I did not mm. um I did not allow him to be a trans man
0: mm-hmm. and
1: actually I want to revisit that and actually improve my scholarship and I think it takes a lot of guts to do that yeah um, and it's incredibly heartening as as a more junior scholar to see that 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 is possible that people are doing that so that to me is an exceptionally potent moment of allyship not just in terms of a a senior scholar being an ally being this scholar being an ally um so yeah more of that would be good again getting beyond i I keep coming back to it but getting beyond this idea of being objective Mm -hmm. that You know things that you weren't aware of at the time, but you you have a chance to educate yourself to learn more, blah blah blah. That you can then update your work to reflect that. And in fact, we should do that.
0: Yeah, that's really heartening. That's amazing. I mean, and that that is that's nice, even just as a as a junior scholar to know, like, oh, okay, that's actually an option. (laughs) Like you can, you know, learn and change your mind, (laughs) and then actually produce updated scholarship. Like you know,
1: and I think that frankly it. It enhances my esteem for that scholar yeah to be able to to do that yeah and and it's important and again like it's a blueprint for how we do this and what it what it looks like to do ethical scholarship generally but also ethical scholarship when dealing with topics of direct interest and lived experience of marginalized Mm -hmm. communities today so Mm -hmm. there's a bit in our um, Blake my introduction where we we talk about trans rights today and like trans visibility because you can't divorce trans people in the past from trans people today. Yeah. That is not ethical scholarship. This is the trans studies and the trans past is not a playground. If you are going to work on trans identity, say medieval hagiography, you have to support, uplift, actually be an active ally of trans people today and especially your trans colleagues. And I mean, I think that is true of all work on again marginalized communities like identities so I also work on um medieval disability studies and I think mm-hmm. the same is true there if, if you're going to work on disabled people in the past and again it's sort of in the language I'm using you work on them you know yeah. and I as a disabled person I find that interesting just to hear myself talk about it in those terms yeah so yeah, yeah it's a big part of my my research generally, and as we express it in the the introduction of the trans volume, is about this idea of communion with the past, about finding oneself in the past, and the past to inhabit you and to actually do justice for everyone in that fellowship.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that being really explicit about um, lived experience and the importance of lived experience and like bringing your own lived experience to scholarship is really, really important. Um, Like I I find it really important. I also work on medieval disability. And I think that um, that is another field. I think I said this earlier that uh, often gets kind of short shrift in terms of like, well, that's not a thing in the middle ages. Like they didn't even have a framework for that. Why that doesn't exist, Um, which is such a like limiting um, way of thinking. I mean, you know, you can be very literal about it and say, well, they didn't have this word or I'm sure with transness too. You can say they didn't have this word to yeah. describe
1: um, that's a bit of a red flag though when somebody does that to me it's like oh yeah. thank you thank you for pointing that out <laughs> I nice, know. <let's go.">
0: yeah <laughs> i've been doing this research for years and yet i never yeah. knew <laughs> yeah um but i think that 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 emphasis on on recovering i mean recovering maybe isn't the right word but um paying attention to and listening for that experience is really important yeah
1: i think i think it's it's both right i think yeah. it, it, both actions have being enacted upon marginalized identities in history in yeah. that this like what which is just ignored or neglected or just said yeah no that's not no 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 the, that feeling you're getting from reading that text that well, that doesn't mean anything no 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 be objective yeah but also that there's literally people being written out of history yeah that we, do we have the sources do we pay attention to the sources are yeah. they ex- li- literally accessible you know there's a the people, as in saints, medieval saints who get most work done on them, are ones that have a good edition, a good translation. It's sort of a, again an extremely obvious point, but so the more we actually do things like that, edit, translate, make accessible, uh, and particularly like trans saints, the more people get access to these like awesome historical forebears, and the better our scholarship becomes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's a huge part of why the why the collection is so exciting. <laughs> well, I'm so excited for it, anyway. You know, because people, you know, are going to actually have access to um, a lot of the scholarship, which is really, really exciting. Um,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Cool. <laughs> um, well, I think that that connecting to that, um, that sort of concept of um, not only lived experience but like doing justice to current mm. lived experience, what I think, is really. Um, important and I think it's lost in a lot of discussions about medieval stuff especially. Um, Yeah. You know, it's in the past, you know, why would we, why would we connect it to modern concerns? Hmm. Um, But I, something that um, you've talked a lot about in reference to both, obviously your your scholarship on saints, but your, um, I guess, sort of ethos (laughs) and thoughts around um, academic labor and time also. um, (laughs) I'm trying, (laughs) I'm making a connection. Um, But you've, uh, I noticed you've done a lot of um, blogging and writing about crypt Time, which is a concept from um, Allison Kafer, which is really, really important within disability studies. um, And also just about temporality in general, that seems to be a really important um, center point of a lot of your work. Um, And including in your discussions of ableism in academia, um, which is, I think, a really important topic. So Um, There was something that you said in a recent post of yours that I hoped I could quote from, (laughs) if that's okay. Um, You say uh, phrases like long hours, a couple of months, crazy hours, days off, the future, the next job, quote unquote, precarity is all about time. Um, I thought that was fascinating. And I was wondering if you could um, maybe talk a little bit bit about or expand on your thoughts about um, normative time as it relates to the academy or academia um
1: yeah i mean i think if you'd asked me there was a point like i think just post phd where i was like how have i become a person where i just sit and go time though what is it mm. yeah because you're right it does actually motivate so much of my work and sort of destabilizing linear time the teleology of objective history mm-hmm. um, and also something that is deeply personal to me as i think time in it in its banalities is deeply personal to everyone. You know, the time one gets to oneself, how you start the day, what your lunchtime looks like. Um, but so um I live with a chronic illness, so fibromyalgia, which is chronic pain and chronic fatigue mostly. Mm-hmm. And so t- I have a very different experience to normate time. You know, I have to do things like how much energy do i have on this day i need to ration energy so i have to think about future me and past me in very different ways i'm very organized for example when it comes to my handling of time because i need to impose some kind of narrative on my bodily chaos so i can't just you know spontaneously be like oh yeah and no, i'll just like go to the pub with you i need you to tell, to give me a time, say, okay, a week from now, so I'm prepared for that, so I can sleep more. I can modulate mm-hmm. my times and ways of dealing with time to yeah. have time to do the thing that's in the diary, and that yeah. to me just became ever more pressing. um The the more, I guess, ensconced in academia, I got in a sense that I think the beginning of my PhD a bit more like a free research. Ah, you can do all the things. It's sort of you know you're told by senior scholars this is the time you'll never get but then I started to feel like well actually though I don't actually have as much functional time as other people and the kind of time that is prioritized in academies so through research time turning up to things time seats time at conferences my body and brain just don't work like that mm-hmm. and I think we tie this to sort of the neoliberalization of the academy in the sense that it's productivity, it's like the idea of sort of a factory. Um, and if you wanna get a job, you have to publish, for example. If you, mm-hmm. and, but you also have to volunteer time in various ways and you also have to teach and teaching is like rigidly structured and scheduled ways. And so there's often a, you know, a sore about, oh, we're just so overworked. And it's sort of like, well, everybody is, and you know, under the neoliberal system. But I think it's particularly pointed in academia because of the valorized way and there's a moral component to not working enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I, I think about it in terms, not just of overwork because it's true, like in your spare time, you're supposed to just write another paper or just do that job application, mm-hmm. but also hyperwork in terms of pace and productivity. Um, and, you know, that only seems to increase So you need to do more in less time, all the time. And that is terrible for everyone, right? I think as Susan Wendell says, is that when pace, the demands and obligations of pace increase, that is actively disabling for everybody. Even if you were notionally able-bodied before, if you're supposed to work faster, there's a point where you just, you can't. Mm -hmm. Now there's obviously, really impacts people for example with care responsibilities um if you have a life frankly but if you if you have a disabled body that requires certain things in certain ways Mm -hmm. you do not have access to the same amount of time as people without disabilities or without care responsibilities but the academy makes no real attempt to deal with that Mm -hmm. right there is no accommodation there is no reckoning with this idea of time is actually fungible and flexible and elastic in the sense that it's different for everybody, mm-hmm. but you can't make extra time. So a classic thing for early career researchers, um, particularly like post PhD in the UK context is, okay, Whilst you're applying for a postdoc or a permanent job or whatever, just, just get a job, which needs to be full time, because you need to pay rent and eat, and on the side, keep publishing remember and you have to keep going to conferences to keep it you know to keep your name in the game and it's all this on the side that's when you when you find time to do the professional thing and that mm-hmm. frankly is impossible yeah and the only way it becomes possible is if you have certain privileges so if you don't need to be actually having a paid job or if you can outsource labor of various kinds or if you can you're healthy enough in that moment able-bodiedness is only um was a temporary state for everyone but in that moment if you can push it that is a privilege and we're facing thus the loss of scores of non-normative bodies from the academy and people who have basically responsibilities of various kinds that are beyond the norm that is set by the academy which remains cis hair white able-bodied mm-hmm. manhood yeah that i mean again i feel like we just have to say it at this point yeah the jobs market is terrible there is ever more pressure to produce more to market yourself the point is that that's not actually doable <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a point where you do need to sleep yeah. there's the a point where you do have to rest and I think the the lie that is peddled in the academy is one that it's meritocratic yeah uh, and two that it you know it's open to everyone it's accessible in a certain way but it's just not yeah. and we're never going to get beyond that unless we actually deal with that
0: yeah no I I think that 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 myth of like individual exceptionalism being enough and what exactly. individual exceptionalism actually entails is really um, yeah. insidious. Like, I think you talked a little bit in your piece about um, the expectations of like, well, everybody works 60 hours a week. Of course you should right. be working 60 or 70 hours a week if you want to get a job. That's just yeah. what people do, you know? Um, or expectations like, well, you need to be like very on top of responding or very quick to respond to things, but exactly. you know, institutions are going to take forever to respond to you. Um, yeah. You know.
1: And, you know or things like uh not being told if you have teaching so yeah if you're on short-term contract but you and you know you can't be late to that first class no you can't just turn off and be like sorry kids like i've had 12 hours to put this together no yeah. that's absolutely yeah, that's institutions routinely tell you very 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 last minute yeah. and often without a proper contract in place so proper kind of labor regulations yeah and this is this is the norm, and yet then, when that happens, one has to flex one's own life and one's own temporality around it. Yeah, constantly. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also um, the idea of like disability is a second shift. Yeah. Like a yeah you know, a job that you can never quit from your job. You yeah. have a disabled body, but yeah. as um, early career researchers, every time you have a short term contract, a huge amount of the contract has to be taken up by getting in place other work. Yeah. So you apply for something. Like, Great, I got it. But then basically from week 1 you have to be applying for things because of the the institutional time scales for we're hiring in a year for yeah. example.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you again you're, you're always operating on these just clashing chaotic and extremely oppressive timescales. Yeah. Um and I and mean, we bring it back to crypt time. I think the glory in a way of crypt time which is in its most simple form, it's just the time scopes, timescapes inhabited by people with non-normative bodies. Um, It's it's just not linear. It's not, you have the calculations of times different. Um, And it is really puts paid to the, again, to this notion of objective time and time is ever expandable. And if you just work hard enough, you will find the time and that's okay is more I uh, kind of honoring I think the multi-layered interacting and intersectional times of living with bodies that do not obey neoliberal productivity um and in my yetness yeah, blog post which <laughs> I think at a certain point you can tell I'm just like you know cat bashing my piano keyboard being like I am angry about this I have the statistics <laughs> to back it up it it's that we are academics generally whether or not you have a disability right now you are being yeah. ever more disabled by the temporal oppressions of the academy at a certain point everybody will break too so disabled academics are hit worst but hit worst of parity because access is still not you know for all um but also you know if you're a disabled person of color for example you are oppressed more you are paid less so this all this additive intersectional identity uh oppressions and so it's kind of saying like it's terrible, <laughs> frankly you know there's yeah. a very specific issue um but it's not crypt time it's not just for crypt bodies and crypt lives there's something here to talk about and think about how one exists and interacts with time in your own life even if you have an able body right now mm-hmm. and that you know, it's the, it's the notion of like, accessibility is better for everyone. Yeah. We're just, you know, the canaries in the coal mine. You know, it's the people who have care responsibilities, who uh, don't have financial support from elsewhere, who are disabled, etc., who are being shed evermore from the academy. And so it's great, you've survived. It's like, you know, Thunderdome, great. But, yeah. you know, the productivity and pace only increases. Everybody has a breaking point. And frankly it is inhuman what is being asked of people yeah
0: yep (laughs) absolutely (laughs) um i don't i don't have a response to that i just my only response is yeah it is
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i think like i said there is a bit like you're talking about the trans saints volume yeah from the point of the negativity which i or oppression yeah. that I think we have to reckon with and identify a name and explicitly push back against, like the white supremacist weaponization of mm-hmm. the Middle Ages. You can't just be like, oh, yeah, but it wasn't like that. we we'll move on. But no, yeah. we have to confront with it, deal with it, push back and be actively anti-racist. In the same way, I think, with disability in the academy actually saying this is a problem and this is a problem in this way, but there are ways to make it better and making it better makes it better for everyone. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if there was an academy where it was genuinely accessible in terms of time as well. People with care responsibilities were completely shattered, for example, in terms of promotions or hiring, or you were judged on the quality of your output, or at the very least, at the basic level, we just got rid of the lie of meritocracy. Yeah. We just do that. I mean, that would be great. (laughs) <laughs> as a starting point
0: yeah um, as a starting so I point
1: I see, you know it's like some of the strands of of hope are there but i think only if we actually deal with this
0: yeah i agree that's trying to give a wise thing to say but yeah you're right i mean and i think it's very easy to get um obviously to get a uh, sort of um uh worn down by that process because that's what it's sort of designed to do but um i think that yeah. um at least being able to like envision those paths forward in community with other people is really um important yeah, and valuable that,
1: yeah it's about finding fellowship again
0: um so we start like the trans volume
1: introductions idea of finding yourself uh, in history and leslie feinberg mm-hmm. saying um not being able to find oneself in history does damage and and how do you find yourself in the present and even envision yeah. a future um and I think it's a similar way in a sense of thinking about like medieval disability medieval saints how, how to be a woman in the middle ages for me is about finding oneself but also just different ways of being in the past to actually be able to come back to the present and having this this communion you know, work on hagiographies I'm like communion yeah yeah coming together <laughs> double meaning but, yeah but yeah. really and I think this this kind of crip chronic communion as I put it in one of the chapters I wrote about it again that actually coming together out from bodies out of time lives out of time coming together is a way to be better in future
0: yeah yeah <laughs> um I think that's actually a really good sort of place to to Woo-hoo! close um you got to a lot of my sort of initial last questions <laughs> in your answer <laughs> um, I was gonna be like how do we move forward what do we do answer you know <laughs> impossible question um but I guess was there anything that you would like to discuss that we didn't actually get to
1: I don't think so I mean I think I guess I would not caveat but sort of recognize that I am only in a position to say that and sort of like have that kind of oh but there could be better because of my privileges that I you know I'm white I can pass as able-bodied which still helps even if I'm out as disabled in the academic community I can still pass if people don't know me for example I can have I'm not being laid off currently from my Mm -hmm. job for example um and so it's it's the job, I think, of people with privilege, like myself, to support people who really don't have the ability to fight right now, in the sense of, you know, when you are adjusting just to try and pay rent, and it's not really working, and you, you have to use a food bank, even though you are, you know, you've been 15 years, and you're actually very ed- educated and qualified, and it's tough, it grinds you down, it wears you down, and so I see this as it it has to be a collective and collaborative effort. Um, And I don't think like hope or kind of forward propulsion as a kind of panacea is really not what I'm asking for or advocating for, Um, it's kind of like hope as a form of resistance.
0: I like that a lot. (laughs) Thank you, it's lovely. No, I, um, I
1: feel like now I need to like get on Oprah. <laughs> like, Oprah, I've, got a, <laughs> I've got a slogan for you. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, it's a good slogan. It's a heartfelt slogan. Um, oh, important last question, though. Is there anything oh, that you would like to plug?
1: Oh, um, I have a blog, mediality.com, because when I grow up, I want to be Jessica Fletcher and solve mysteries. Um, I'm on Twitter at A Spencer Hall um the volume is called trans and genderqueer subjects in medieval hagiography co-edited by uh, blake gutt and it's out with amsterdam University Press in a couple of months hopefully uh oh my first book is called wait i need to remember this one medieval saints and modern screens cinematic visions something google it and it's open access <laughs> so you can read it
0: for free on the internet right now I will link that under the, under the podcast description. Um, I'll link all those things. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think it's that's been a real that's... pleasure.
1: Thank yeah. you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. Medieval Pod is produced and hosted by me, Emily Price. Our theme song is Through the City 2 by Croander used under a Creative Commons BY-NC non-commercial license. Our logo was designed by Kat Schneider. You can find the show notes and additional learning resources at medievalpod.newmedialab.cuny.edu, and you can follow us on Twitter at MedievalPod.